You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome everyone to Teller from Jerusalem, and I am your host, Hanok Teller. Happy to announce that tonight's milestone is Season 2, Episode number 30. The Law of Return was passed unanimously by the Knesset, Israel's parliament, on July 5, 1950. The date was chosen so that it would coincide with the anniversary of the death of the Zionist visionary Theodor Herzl. It declared, quote, Every Jew has the right to come to this country as an ole, as an immigrant. In a declaration to the Knesset, the then-Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion asserted that the law did not bestow a right, but rather reaffirmed a right Jews already held. Law of Return, which was passed by the Knesset soon after the establishment of the State of Israel, granted every Jew in the world the right to immigrate to the new state, also known as making Aliyah. Regardless of skin color, ethnicity, or level of observance, any person with at least one Jewish grandparent would have a home there. No longer would there be the wandering Jew. After 2,000 years of exile and persecution, Jews anywhere could finally move into their new home. In a way, Israel considers any Jew, no matter where they live, to be a citizen who just hasn't moved yet. Jews who attempted to avert persecutions found the doors of every country closed to them. Finally, whoever wished was welcomed in Israel. And not only would, they, would every individual Jew be welcomed, but Israel undertook dangerous rescue missions to bring the entire populations of a country to Israel. After 1948, there were several such missions with glamorous code names, like Operation Magic Carpet, which was the airlift of Yemenite Jewry, which will be discussed and the subject of this very podcast. Listen again to the wonderful History of Israel Unpacked video. It's 1947, and the United Nations just passed Resolution 181, which was going to split the land west of the Jordan River between the Jews and the Arabs. Some Arabs in Yemen were upset that the Jews were taking land away from their fellow Arabs and started rioting and killed over 80 Jews. It soon became very clear that the Jews of Yemen needed a new home. Fast forward to June 1949, one year after the establishment of the State of Israel. The situation in Yemen had deteriorated for the Jews, but this time, Israel was there to help. The Yemenite Jews shared the same Torah as the rest of world Jewry, and most of the same laws and practices as well. But they also had many different customs that dated back thousands of years. To Israelis, these Jews were different than any Jews they'd ever met. But at the same time, they were seen as the most Jewish of Jews because their traditions went so far back to a time when the Bible had not even been completed. Anyway, Israel was determined to rescue the Jews of Yemen and named this mission Operation Magic Carpet. Over the course of 14 months, 50,000 Yemenite Jews, the vast majority of Yemen's Jewish population, along with 2,000 Jews from Saudi Arabia, were airlifted to Israel. In the eyes of those Jews from Arabia, this was like the prophetic redemption they had been waiting for. The story of the miraculous rescue of Yemenite Jewry that we shall be portraying is going to be primarily based on the book Alaska Over Israel, Operation Magic Carpet, The Men and Women Who Made It Happen in the Little Airline That Could. Written by Dara Metzger, the daughter of Warren and Marion Metzger, that flew and met and married, resulting from the operation. I'm also indebted to a lecture that I heard from Leslie Portnoy on the subject. The operation was carried out in the greatest secrecy, for if the Arabs would have discovered what was happening, they would have protested as noisily as possible, and more significantly, 
they would have used their air forces to shoot down the aircraft airlifting the people. This immediately begs a question. How can you extract 50,000 people, including crying babies, without anyone knowing? And don't forget, transport planes are big, noisy birds that require long runways and have to be fueled. But for now, we will leave that as a teaser. Not only were the Arabs in the dark, so was the entire world that only learned about the operation after it was over. Studying the history and certainly understanding it requires a modicum of geographic comprehension by way of analogy. General Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware, even if you aren't familiar with the Emanuel Lutz famous painting, and who isn't, requires understanding that the river has to have been half ice on December 25th, 26th, the year of course being 1776, and only such a strategic crossing would enable Washington to surprise the British in the Battle of Trenton. Back to the other side of the world. To the south of Yemen is the Arabian Sea, or more correctly, the Gulf of Aden, which feeds into the Arabian Sea. To the west is the Red Sea, as in the splitting of the Sea of Biblical fame. To the north is Saudi Arabia, where Jews are not even allowed to enter the country. And to the east is Oman, with similar laws. The Jews of Yemen were trapped and totally at the mercy of their Arab neighbors. Their route of escape could not be over land, nor could it be by sea, as that would mean passing more hostile Arab countries, and Egypt had closed the Red Sea to Israeli-bound shipping. In the absence of tunneling well over 1,000 miles, the only option was by air, not that there was a belligerent free air corridor. So many things about the founding of the State of Israel, as in life, are about selecting the best of bad alternatives. Israel had agents in the country in order to whisk the Jews out, but first they had to concentrate them in a central extraction point. The plan was to get all the Jews to travel to the very southern tip of Yemen to the British protectorate of Aden. Aden is a small country, only 74 square miles. Nonetheless, by 1958, Aden was the second busiest port in the world, second only to New York, based on the tried-and-true rule of location, location, location. The distance from Sa'ana, Yemen's capital where most of the Jews lived, to Aden, was 300 kilometers or 186 miles as the crow flies. And most crows don't have the stamina for that kind of trek. Today there are proper roads, and it's about 450 kilometers or 216 miles. This is a very long way to walk through deserts and mountains. Some of the Jews were even more north than Sana. There weren't roads, and the journey was a nightmare, many of them dying en route. Religious fanatics attacked them on their excursion, and hunger and thirst and disease were their constant companion. British authorities put 12,000 of the Jewish arrivals into refugee camps in Aden. Unbeknownst to the Jews, their admission into the refugee camps was fortunate, indeed life-saving. For when the UN had the partition vote on November 29, 1947, Arabs rioted murdering at least 82 Jews in Aden and numerous other locations in the Arab world. Many were wounded, injured, and maimed. Scores of Jewish women were raped. These were innocent people who did nothing wrong, criminal or afoul. Innocent people who did nothing other than being Jewish, which to a crazed, agitated, and inflamed Muslim mind is a felonious enough crime to be deserving of rape, murder, 
and mayhem. The Jewish quarter was looted and burned down. Most of the reports described that the police did nothing to protect and even joined in the rampage. How reminiscent is this of the Kishnah pogrom? It sounds almost word for word. Later, when the army was summoned to restore order, they also did nothing to protect the Jews, and on the contrary, the soldiers actually fired upon the innocent, pursued Jews. Those that were in the refugee camps escaped unscathed simply because there were British guards posted to see to it that they did not escape. These very same guards assigned to ensure that no one escapes ended up saving those imprisoned inside from the rioting Arabs who wished to enter the camps and inflict a pogrom upon the Jews. The Jews had arrived in Aden were penniless, having been robbed in their migration or forced to pay ransoms to the sheiks whose territories they passed along the way. The joint reached an understanding, read, bribed the sheiks whose territories the wanderers had to cross on their way to the British crown colony of Aden. Among the rivals were many old-timers and many infants, all of whom were starving and diseased. By the time they arrived after their arduous and long journey, every inch by foot, they were reduced to bags of bones. Dysentery and other diseases were rife. Mortality rates were horrendous, and there's a cemetery there where hundreds of victims are buried. The Joint Distribution Committee, otherwise known as the JDC or simply just the Joint, set up facilities and named the camp appropriately Gu'ula, which means redemption. The Joint provided basic rations to prevent starvation and rudimentary medical care. Everything was primitive, including communal outhouses. In 1948, when the State of Israel was declared, there was a renewal of deadly attacks against the Jews. The Arabs were chagrined by the defeat of the Arab armies on the battlefields of Palestine, and they were stimulated by the opportunities to loot. Bands of Muslims swarmed in upon the Jewish neighborhoods, plundering and burning. Remember that the first set of assaults were triggered by the announcement of the UN vote for the partition plan, November 29, 1947. Something urgently had to be done. The Jews were sitting ducks. Leaving Yemen, as Howard Sacher points out, was nothing less than a matter of survival. Enormous bribes from Israel were given to the rulers of Yemen to turn a blind eye as the airlift was to get underway. Part of the bribe was to fund the posting of guards to ensure that the airfields were not attacked. What airline would be willing to fly into the chaos of Yemen and then fly a route entirely within the range of Arab anti-aircraft guns housed in countries that despised Israel? The answer? It was a time, directly after World War II, where there were an abundance of young men who had become highly trained pilots flying missions in World War II. The war was over, but the bug. The spirit and the craving for the high-octane adrenaline fix of flying dangerous missions was still very much part of their persona. These young men still sought to fly, and flight companies arose that converted military aircraft into passenger planes. These pilots were willing to fly military transport aircraft to unusual destinations and charge little for their services. The planes were modified by removing the seats to absorb large numbers of passengers, something that the plane designers could never have imagined. The FAA limits the number of flying time to, for, for pilots to 75 hours a month. These pilots airlifting Jews out of Yemen were clocking between 270 
and 300 hours a month. Furthermore, planes also require routine servicing for very obvious reasons. Basically, the only servicing these planes underwent were from the pilots themselves, who had to deal with the problems which arose in the most primitive ways with jerry-rigged improvisions. Think bubblegum and rubber bands. If a defect was discovered, and I do not mean TV, TV screens malfunctioning, grounding the plane was never an option. The pilot had to think of how to stem the, the leaks and keep the bird operational. Maintenance issues and overhauls were required but simply ignored, or maybe it would be kinder to say were postponed. Factually, the planes had so many problems and issues, it was a wonder, if not a miracle, that they managed to fly at all. And which airline was it that provided the planes and pilots? None other than Alaska Airways. Although Alaska did not become a state until 1959, Alaska Airways was still an American company, which meant they were governed by FAA rules. Apparently, the FAA did not have strict oversight in those years, but it would eventually catch up. Getting fuel for the planes was a really major issue for, the contradictory, for contradictory reasons. The planes would take off from Aden on nearly an empty tank and then refuel in Eritrea right across the Red Sea. But they could not fully load up their fuel tanks, for it would be impossible to take off with a plane full of fuel and the weight of all the passengers. True, the Jews who survived the trek to Aden were emaciated, barely weighing 80 pounds, the heavy ones, that is, but multiply that by 200 and you have 8 tons. Multiple times the regulated load, they were licensed to carry no more than 60 passengers. According to the historian Daniel Gordis in his magisterial book, Israel, it was 500 to 600 passengers a flight, and this is also confirmed by Sir Martin Gilbert in his typically impressive book, also titled Israel, thus making it 24 tons of passenger weight. The Yemenite leaders made it clear that they had only allowed the Jews to leave their towns and villages on their trek southward if they'd leave all of their possessions behind. The silver lining of this decree was that at least there wasn't much weight in terms of luggage. The planes would take off with minimal amounts of fuel and plan to refuel somewhere along the way. Somewhere along the way in hostile territory. This is not like driving along the highway and banking on getting a tank full of gas along the way as the radio is playing. Was a tank of gas in a radio song down to the right? Was a tank of gas in a radio song? Thank you, Travis Denning. This is literally, as much as you can say about a figurative expression, flying by the seat of their pants. Wherever they could find an airfield or a country that would fuel them, they would dip down and fuel up. This would always require large cash payments and bribes, but the flights continued always short of fuel and overloaded with passengers. What the pilots were doing was highly dangerous. Aside from all that we have already mentioned, they had to fly a narrow corridor that skirted Arab airspace without state-of-the-art instruments and deprived of radio guidance. The desert sand wreaked havoc on the engines. Invariably, the plane still flew over Arab and Muslim countries. Although they were civilian aircraft and they had no military markings, such repeated flights over the same route towards the despised new country of Israel could not fail to be noticed. Upon occasion, 
anti-aircraft fire was directed at the planes, particularly from Egypt. It is not uncommon for planes to land in Tel Aviv with bullet holes riddling the fuselage. One pilot had the poor timing of landing in Israel at the time of an enemy bombing raid in Tel Aviv, resulting in one of his tires being blown out. There were also emergency landings. One plane was hit by anti-aircraft fire, two engines erupting in flames, and the pilot still managed to land the plane, and everyone lived to tell the tale. The British, at wit's end protecting the Jewish refugees from the Arab marauding parties, wanted to get the Jews out as quickly as possible. But they warned the pilots that if they had to land their planes in Arab countries, the locals would definitely murder all of the passengers, and likely the crew as well. The pilots, who did not have much fuel to make it all the way to Israel, would have to refuel en route. Most commonly this was done in Port Sudan, and each landing proved to be a harrowing as rifle-toting soldiers would surround the plane. Often the hostile soldiers would board, the, would board, brandishing their weapons, making the already terrified passengers melt in fear. To try and increase the range of the flights and avoid landing in Arab territory, extra fuel tanks were installed in the planes, that is, barrels of fuel. The combustible danger that this represented is so enormous that an analogy is not even necessary. Stanley Epstein, a pilot and maintenance specialist, was airlifting supplies from Czechoslovakia to Israel when he was drafted into Operation Magic Carpet. He reported that one airplane missed the runway in Asmara, Eritrea, but it did not explode or even burn, despite the fact that it was loaded with gasoline barrels. One pilot, Bob McGuire, and this would be the very one who on one occasion had to dip down to several hundred feet above ground and squirm through hills and passes to evade Arab gunfire, had several stories of miracles, daring feats, and nerve. On one occasion, he had to land smack dab in hostile territory when he ran out of fuel and was forced to land in Port Sudan, Egypt. Bob McGuire radioed ahead that he needed ambulances right away to rush his sick passengers to the hospital. The airport officials asked what the problem was. They said there was an outbreak of smallpox on the plane. When the plane landed, there was no soldiers. There were no soldiers in sight, just a fuel truck ready to expeditiously do its job. Ground control instructed the pilot that, under no condition, may he open the door of the plane and must take off immediately upon being refueled. There was also danger on board, insofar as the crew was totally unable to communicate with the passengers. The passengers, many of whom came from villages distanced from Sana, were terrified from the aircraft as they had never seen any machine a hundredth of the size of the plane, or any machines at all, including a car. The Israeli agents told the Yemenites that there was nothing to be afraid of, as these were the wings of eagles, just as the Torah has promised in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, but the Yemenites did not trust them. Then someone had the brilliant idea of painting eagles on the door of the aircraft. Alaska Airlines painted an eagle with outstretched wings over the door of each airplane. They reassured the people when they got on the plane. That did the trick. As the Yemenites saw the eagles and boarded the aircraft, assured that the prophecy was being fulfilled. Golda Meir recalled that, quote, that sometimes I would go down to the airport in Lud and watch the planes from Aden touch down, marveling at the endurance and faith of their exhausted passengers. I asked, had you ever seen a plane before? I asked one bearded old man. No, he answered. But weren't you very frightened of flying? 
I persisted. No, he said again, very firmly. Quote, it's all written in the Bible. In Isaiah, they shall mount up with wings of eagles. And standing there on the airfield, he recited the entire passage to me, his fate lit with the joy of a fulfilled prophecy and of the journey's end. The passage which the old man recited from Isaiah chapter 40 reads, and forgive me for using Old English, it just sounds so much more appropriate in this instance. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, he giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no, no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount upon the wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As there was such a rush to evacuate in fear that it could be stopped at any moment, everything was done in complete secrecy. The planes had everything within removed to allow for as many passengers as possible. Ropes were placed across the fuselage to be used as a kind of seat belt. The number of passengers far exceeded what the plane designers had ever imagined, even though they were emaciated, the heaviest of them being just 80-odd pounds. The tallest ones did not even reach the pilot's chests. On several occasions, the passengers lit fires on the plane to cope with the cold of flying over 10,000 feet above sea level. They did this as there were gasoline fumes seeping inside and barrels of fuel. None of the passengers had ever been on a plane before, and many of them had never even been in a motor vehicle. Right after takeoff, the plane banked to turn on course. Many got airsick, so the crew handed them airbags, but they had no idea what to do with these bags, and the crew, crew had no way to communicating with the passengers, and vice versa. Because of the sharp banking, and the choppy ride, numerous passengers immediately got sick, got airsick, and rushed upon their neighbors. This then nauseated the neighbors on the receiving end, and they reacted in kind until eventually the whole plane was vomiting upon each other, and the smell in the closed cabin was atrocious. There were toilets in the back of the plane, but the passengers had never seen indoor plumbing or even knew what it was. Passengers who had to relieve themselves did so on the floor. The stench from this and the air sickness made the conditions intolerable. The stench could have put a gorilla out of business. After landing, the inside, the inside of the plane had to be hosed down. Alas, the floor of the plane was not waterproof, and under the floor were control cables, and under the constant assault of water they began to rot. There were a host of problems at every turn. Upon alighting in Israel, very often the passengers would kiss the ground, as you hear in this clip produced by Karen Hayasod. These olim are among the remnants of the Jewish community of Yemen that at its height numbered about 50,000 Jews. Most of them came to Israel in 1949. This was the first mass aliyah to arrive in the newly established state of Israel. Taking their precious Torah scrolls with them, the Jews of Yemen boarded the unfamiliar flying machines in what became known as Operation Magic Carpet. The airplanes would span distance and time, taking them in a few short hours to a new world. Arriving 
they kissed the earth that they had known only in dreams and in prayers. As soon as the planes landed and discharged their cargo, cargo being precious persecuted human beings, the planes would take off to Cyprus for the night to prevent the valuable planes from being attacked or sabotaged. The airport was being bombed all the time, and for this reason they could not keep the planes on the ground. One flight was delayed upon departure, and by the time it arrived in Lud, the airport had no runway lights on to avoid being attacked by the enemy. So the runway and the airport were opaque black, and the pilot had no fuel to, try to fly anywhere else. He did the only thing that he could do, which was execute a terrifying near-blind landing using only the landing lights of the aircraft. At the end of the operation, nearly 50,000 Jews were airlifted, including 3,275 from Aden and 500 from Eritrea and Djibouti. Everything was done in secrecy so that the sheiks and local leaders could collect their bribes and not be accused of helping Israel. The press in Israel was under censorship, but nothing was preventing a foreign correspondent from reporting on the goings-on, and the aerial railroad landed in broad daylight. By any metric, this was a major mega-news item. The secret extraction of nearly an entire population, yet the matter was never divulged until it was all over on September 24, 1950. Alaska Airways deserves so much credit, and aside from the intrepid crew, the president of the airline, James Whitten, heroically worked out logistics for over a year and one of the driving forces of the operation. The man had a condominium waiting for him in heaven. There were also other planes and pilots from other camp companies, aside from Alaska Airways, that were pressed into the service in this secret mission. When the FAA finally got wind as to how many rules had been ignored, they imposed enormous fines upon Alaska Airways and suspended the pilots' licenses. Clearly, the most remarkable thing about the entire daring operation was that no one was ever killed, died, or even wounded. Not one, at odds that defy any logic. The cost of resettling each refugee from Yemen and Israel was calculated at $3,000. Multiplying 3000 by 50000 is $150 million, which was substantially more than the entire budget of the State of Israel at the time of Magic Carpet. In today's money, that is nearly $2 billion. The joint and other organizations raised the money for this. Our next podcast, Part 2, regarding the evil of humiliating, will be our final podcast before the summer recess. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit TellerFromJerusalem.com you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to TellerFromJerusalem.com. 